1: A writer who, um, I guess we were referring to ourselves as legacies as kind of old timers <laughs> a little while ago. This guy hit with a, uh, a real bang in the 80s with, uh, many, uh, with books that many saw as the sort of beginning of the um, cyberpunk and the beginning of, in many ways, of the steampunk phenomenon. He, uh, since then, he's, he's a little bit, to me, like the hedgehog of science fiction. Now you see him and now you don't. Uh, when he's around, he's, he's very visible, and when he's not, you kind of wonder where he is. Uh, he's, al- he's also uh, written uh, several um, Star Wars and Star Trek-type books. He's been a New York Times bestseller, and his new book is what uh, is called Supernatural Historical fantasy, I believe, is how the Kingdom of Shadows oh, there, <coughs> was okay. described by somebody, but um, I don't know if he's going to read from that well, tonight well, well. or what. But at any rate, we are very pleased to welcome here for the first time K.W. Jeter.
0: All right. Well, I'm really. What's that? That's, what's that? Is that so <laughs> sweet? <laughs> yeah, what's that? That's the future, dude. Um,
1: uh,
0: can can people hear me all right? Uh, okay. Um, I'm really glad to to be reading after these two guys because I, I one I I admire them both greatly, and secondly, they're so much fun and their stuff is so enjoyable and everybody's in a good mood and everything like that. You know, I hate to spoil the party until everybody's had you know fun and you know. <laughs> I've had people you know, come up to me after reading and say, you know, I was having a good time until I heard you read your stuff. <laughs> and I've always had to respond by saying, you know, it's not just my, my writing that has that effect on people. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's been a thing you know, all my life. Um, and v- very oddly, uh, because just recently, uh, I've been writing a lot of uh, uh, you know, lighthearted stuff uh, including the, um, the sequel to my old ste- steampunk novel, um, Infernal Devices, a um, sequel of that called uh, Fiendish Schemes. That will be out uh, probably next year uh, from Tor. And then uh, I got started writing um, uh, a series of thriller novels that right now are only available on, uh, for the Kindle and the Nook uh, called the Kim O. Thrillers, which are my first uh, non-science fiction or non-fantasy uh, uh, forays, and um, what's very strange about them uh, is that I wrote them very fast, and it was one of the first times of my writing career, probably since uh, when I first started writing, that I really felt like I was channeling a, a, a voice, and uh, the novels are written in uh, the first person, or, you know, they're told in the first person by a, um, a 20-year-old uh uh, female Korean-American. And people have read the books and said, well, you're obviously not drawing on deep personal experience here, uh, except for maybe the 20-year-old part, and you've probably forgotten that. Um, but, you know, she, she's, she's an interesting person, and uh, she has sort of a, 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 a simmering uh, anger about uh, um, the American workplace. I mean, she essentially, she gets into killing people because she hates her boss, and 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 it's only the first one that's hard. After that, uh, it, it becomes easier and easier. But after I, you know, and but the books are essentially humorous. You know, like all novels about killing your boss are, uh, you know, lighthearted. Um, and they are a tremendous amount of fun to write. And uh, you know, I was having a good time. And people have told me these are really funny and everything. And you know, usually, in a, usually in a disbelieving voice, you're like, "These are really funny. Are you sure you wrote them?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can pull it out when I want to. <laughs> but but you know, after having had so much fun writing those, um, a fellow named Stephen Anzac, I believe, uh, uh, he pronounces his name. He's uh, editing a uh, a um, uh, anthology for the Penguin Group, which I believe is going to be called um, Clockwork Fables. Oh, did you get solicited for that? Yeah. Too? Okay, did you, did you?
1: Yeah, I, he, he, I, he, I just rewrote the editorial for that. So. Oh,
0: okay, great, great, super. Okay, so we're both going to be in it? Super, okay, watch Watch for uh, uh, Clockwork Fables, uh, edited by uh, Stephen Ansek coming from uh, the Penguin Group. Uh, it's, you know, the, the concept of the collection is that they're um, steampunk uh, takes on old uh, fairy tales and fantasies and uh, legends and, and things like that and uh, I got solicited for it by uh, Mr. Ansek. And um, I said, you know, can I choose anything? And uh, he said, well, sure, you know, that's the point we're not gonna, you know, order you. And um, I chose um, uh, Hans Christian Andersen's The Red Shoes. Ooh, yeah, okay, there you go, super. Um, Partly, not so much because of the, 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 the original story, but because of the, the great movie that was based upon it. The, uh, the Michael Powell, isn't it? Michael Powell, the director of uh, uh, The Red Shoes, which essentially took the, the concept of, of um, you know dancing to death and, and made this great meditation about, about the, uh, the, the cost of one's commitment to one's art. Um, plus, the movie has got one of the, the, the great... Great dancing actresses of all time, Moore, sure, in it. Um, beautiful redhead too. Uh, and anyway, uh, so in that sense, my take on the Red Shoes is not, you know, similar to either the original Hans Christian Andersen story, or the uh, the Michael Powell movie, but sort of uh, just plays off that certain element of it. Um, and I thought that 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 Stephen would probably have a surfeit. Of stories that were essentially lighthearted and humorous and and fun, so I thought he'll probably want something really, or he'll be in need of something really grim and gray and depressing to sort of <laughs> counterbalance it, and and I'm the man, you know, uh, for for that sort of thing, and so um, this is my take on um, um, Hans Christian Andersen and Michael Powell's uh, the the Red Shoes. It's called uh, Le Valse, which. I'm sure most of you will get as a reference to the uh, the great uh, Maurice Ravel piece and the uh, the uh, balancing uh, ballet that was based upon it. And I am reading it, you know, off of you know not, none of this. Is that, is that luddite or what? I mean, I mean, you're embarrassing me, Jay. This is the past. This, this is the past. Here we go. Okay, all right. So um, and and uh, Terry promised to. Uh, Taser, give me a, a fifteen-minute taser as, oh, as a warning we're shot. We're read the okay. Story now. okay, read the story now. I've already burned up fifteen minutes. We're done. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um. But anyway, if it depresses you, you know, it's obviously <laughs> tough read shit. <laughs> <laughs> tough like, shit. I'm going. Like, yes, he's going. This tough is like tough
1: shit. listening to Bob Silver give a Hugo presentation. <laughs> <laughs> very
0: close. Very close. Very close. Yeah. Uh, I think some of, some of Bob's Hugo presentations are still going on. And <laughs> so, uh, yeah. The problem, said Herr Dr. Pavel, is that we gained our empire when we were young, and now we are old. With a great iron spanner in his hands, he turned to his assistant and smiled. What could be worse than that? I don't know. Anton felt himself to be a child when hearing of such things. I'm not as old as you at all. Around them, in the Apollosal's basements, the machinery wept. Even though they had both spent the better part of a week down there in preparation for this evening's grand events, still the miasmatic hiss and soft plodding leaks prevailed over their efforts. The ton-shaped boilers, vast enough to engulf carriages and peasants' huts, shuddered with the scalding forces pent inside them. Their rivets seeped rust. In the far-off corners where the theatrical scenery was kept and more often forgotten, Pasteboard castles sagged beneath the threadbare fronds of a humid jungle of faux palm trees. Age, like wealth, is but a mental abstraction, my boy. The doctor peered at a creaking armature above his head, adjusting some aspect of it with a miniature screwdriver, skill as precise and surgical as though his title were that of a physician rather than an engineer. And nothing more, he said. People fancy that God loves them and consider themselves and their kind exceptional as a result. He wiped his pale, egg-like brow with the grease-smeared lace of his shirt cuff. If such fancies were gears and dreams cogs, I would wind this world's mainspring tight enough to hum. Anton didn't know what that meant. The doctor was of an obscure and poetic persuasion. He took the screwdriver from the hand held toward him, replacing the tool in its exact slot with the greater and smaller ones on either side. Will everything be ready by tonight? He thought that was more important to know. If the ballroom's mechanisms were not completely functional and satisfactory when the guests arrived, then the doctor and he would not be paid, resulting in a cold and hungry New Year's Eve for them. Not to worry. The doctor picked up his tool bag and moved on. He tapped a lean forefinger on a set of calliope-like pipes, each in turn, flakes of rust drifting onto his vest as he bent his ear toward them just as a physician counterpart might thump the chest of a tubercular patient to assess how long he had to live. No one's merriment will be impaired by the likes of us. In winters such as these, were there any other kind anymore? Anton limited his hopes to that much. If one managed to get to the first muddy thawing days before actual spring, then there was a chance at least of something other than this. Something other than the dank, hissing basements under the ballrooms and palaces of that finer, fragile world above. Far from the sharp-toothed gears and interlocking wheels, the pistons gleaming in their oily sheaths, the ticking escapements wide as cartwheels, the mainsprings uncoiling like nests of razor-thin serpents. He could take Giesel out beyond the apple orchards, their branches still black and leafless. No matter that it would cost him a day's wages, and her a-scolding from the head housekeeper. What would it matter if both of them would go supperless that night, bellies empty as their aching arms, lying on straw-filled pallets far from each other, gazing out cobwebbed attic windows at an envious moon, remembering how the ice at the roots of the sodden grass creaked beneath the back of her chambermaid's blouse, his face buried in the gathered folds of her apron, smelling of honey and lye, her hand stroking his close-cropped head as she turned her face away and wept at how happy she was, if only for a moment. What are you dreaming about? The doctor's voice broke into his warming reveries. Come over here and help me open up these valves. He did as he was ordered, letting all the girl's smiles flutter away like ashes up a chimney flue. Straining at the stubborn machinery, he let one other hope step inside his heart that none of their work here readying for the gala ball would require going down into the sub basements below these where the great roaring furnaces and boilers resided. He hated having to go down there, hated seeing the stokers chained between the fiery iron doors and heaps of coal, the shimmering heat revealing the stripes across their naked backs. Their eyes would turn toward him as they crouched over their black shovels. Their eyes would tell him, as you are, once were we steal but the slightest crust or bauble, and join us here. Their extinguished voices would follow him as he fled up the spiral of clanging metal stairs, the errand accomplished that Herr Dr. Favel had sent him on. He could hear them now, whispering far beneath his sodden clogs, as he gritted his teeth and strained to turn the most ancient of the spoked wheels another quarter turn. That's good. The doctor stepped back, wiping his hands across his vest. Anton, my coat, if you please. He fetched the swallow-tailed garment, lifting it from the hook by the stone arch of the cellar door. The horsehair-padded shoulders itched his own palms as he helped the doctor slide into its heavy woolen arms. There, an old man's vanity, he tugged at the lapels, gazing fondly at his reflection in one of the floor's puddles. When everyday gentlemen dressed as elegant as this, the empire was feared by Cossack and Hun alike. If you say so. Anton had no memory of such things. The doctor might have been imagining such faded glories for all he knew. We'll discuss it another time. The sad state of his assistant's learning was a topic frequently evoked, if never acted upon. Let's fire her up, lad. A job well done's the best payment. Anton watched as the doctor pushed one lever after another. Constellations of gears engaged about them, all enveloped in sweating vapor, Ratchet and Piston moved through their limited courses, the clatter of brass and iron loud as church bells on a tone-deaf Easter morning. Splendid, the doctor bent his head back, gazing up enraptured at the chamber's damp ceiling. Do you hear it? Do you? He knew what those sounds were, barely audible through the commotion of the machinery driving them. He had heard them before, every year's in, from when he had first apprenticed to the dancing engineer's trade, to now this last calendar page, so much dragglier and tattered than the ones from all the years before. He pulled his own thin coat away from one of the jointed apertures, thrusting up through the ceiling, careful not to be snagged by its pump-like motions. All through the basement, more such churned away, up and down and at various angles, pivoting upon the hinges that he and the doctor had so carefully greased. Like a mechanical forest brought to clanking animation, white gouts billowing from every quivering pipe, There they go, thought Anton, as he looked up where the doctor gazed. He could see them, without going up the stairs to the grand ballroom. The empty metal frameworks, like iron scarecrows, would be bowing to one another, then embracing. The smaller with the larger, just as if already filled by the evening's elegant guests. Already, the mechanical violins were scraping their bows across the rosin strings. Closing his eyes, he watched from inside his head as each skeletal apparatus jointed struts and trusses, cages shaped into men and women, took another by a creaking hand, then swirled across the acres of polished floor, just as though it were the music that impelled them, rather than clockwork and steam. Giesel breathed into her cupped hands, warming the strands of pearls she held. There might come a day when she was old enough, with years of servile experience ingrained through every memory, that she would be entrusted to help dress their dowager employer. For now, Giesel watched as the senior maids, some of them older than the bent and wrinkled figure upon whom they waited, busied themselves with the intricate laces and stays. Ah, you're too cruel to me. Vanity and girlish affectations tinged the dowager's simpered, murmured words. You'll break something one of these days. I know you will. She brought her hawk-etched, deep-seamed visage over the lace at her shoulder and smiled the yellow of old parchment at her attendants. But not tonight, she said. Be so sweet as to spare me just one more night of pleasure. The maids said nothing but obliged with nods and their own little smiles. Giesel had heard the old woman say the same thing the year before and the year before that. She had still been working in the scullery three winters ago, scrubbing the stone floors with a wet rag, but... The oldest of the chambermaids had told her that the dowager had spoken the same words every New Year's Eve for decades now. None of them were quite sure that the dowager could say anything else, at least not while getting dressed for the ball. She watched as the others stepped back, the gown assembled into place at last, as though a seamstress had wrapped lengths of ancient silk around a bone dummy. The dowager admired herself in a triptych of full-length mirrors, as though the gray film at the center of her eyes somehow filtered out the overlapping scales of time, letting through only the image of the lithe girl she still believed herself to be. Now the pearls were as warm as Giesel's blood. They could have been a kitten sheltered beneath, between one palm and the other, if only they had breathed and had a fluttering pulse inside soft fur. She stepped forward with them, holding the, them up as though they were some sort of offering. No, not now. The dowager surprised them all by saying something different that she had never said before. She waved a wrinkled, impatient hand at Giesel. They caught last time, in the framework. Her scarleted nails clawed at the tendons that ridged her neck. How they tormented me the whole beautiful night, dancing and dancing, and the whole time I felt as though I was being strangled. I could have burst into tears from the pain if I had let myself. Giesel dared to speak, though she received a warning glance from the oldest chambermaid. You don't want to wear them? Silly girl, of course I do. "'They were my mother's, and her mother took communion from the hand of a pope "'with them around her throat. "'How could I not wear them on a festive occasion such as this? "'I wear them every New Year's ball. "'I'm sorry. Don't fret about it, dear.' "'The dowager smiled even wider and scarier (laughs) "'as she let one of the other maids settle a wrap about her shoulders. "'Let us go to the Apollo Sol. you and I, just the two of us. "'Won't that be fun? And you can put the pearls upon me there.' so you can make certain they don't pinch and bind. I believe that's the smartest thing to do, don't you? I don't know why I didn't think of it before." The notion terrified Giesel. Her heart pounded at the base of her own throat as she felt all the other maids turning their silent, premonitory gaze upon her. What would she do without the others, the older ones, to tell her what to do? But I don't know. No one will mind, I'm sure, Once the music starts, I'm sure there'll be some little corner where you can crouch and hide, perhaps in the back from where the waiters bring the champagne and the marzipan cakes. No one will even see you. The dowager's eyes were like ivory knife points set in crepe paper as she went on smiling. She knows I'm scared, thought Giesel, holding the bundled pearls closer to herself. That's why she wants me to go with her. If only she hadn't let the dowager see that in her, she might have had a chance to escape. But now there wasn't any. She nodded dumbly and followed the other woman out of the dressing room and toward the curving sweep of stairs that led down to the carriage outside the door and all the wintry city streets beyond. As the guests assembled, he saw her. Anton's heart raced, it always did, as though some internal furnace of his emotions had been stoked higher. Assembled, it seemed almost literally to him. This was the part of his apprenticeship to the doctor which he disliked the most. Some tasks were worse than others. He thanked God, the one cloaked in the tattered remnants of his faith, that this one came about only once a year, and at the end of it, so that even in the bleakest December, there would likely be no further discouragements. With his own tool kit slung by a leather strap from his shoulder, he hastened through the grand ballroom. Only the lesser nobility were entrusted to him, and of those, only the men. He knelt before baronets and princelings, the younger sons of dynasties and households, so ancient that their pedigrees might have been traced in whatever pages would have followed the Book of Revelations. As Herr Dr. Pavel had pointed out more than once to him, youth was as relative a term as wealth, in this case meaning only slightly less gray and enfeebled. With wrench and calibrated screwdrivers, Anton encased spindly legs, cavalry boots buffed lustrous by their lackeys, into the jointed cage-like frames. Standing up, he fastened curved metal bands about the noblemen's waists and chests, taking care not to disarray their ranks of medals, gleaming as miniature (coughs) suns, with the profiles of dead emperors at their centers. Last came the tapered armatures locked into place at their wrists and elbows, linked by clever pistons to the similar mechanisms at their shoulders. With a few of the more dissipated, he had to hold their arms above their heads himself, while with his other hand he completed the necessary fastenings. As a lady's maid might corset an obese matron, he would then raise a knee to the smaller backs, in order to engage all the torso elements to the mechanical iron spines that extended from their hips to the napes of their stiffly colored necks. But he had to admit the results were impressive. When he finally stood back from each one, his tools dangling in each hand, they stood at attention, chests thrust out inside the metal cages, shoulders pulled back by bows of iron behind them each as proudly straight as though their decorations had been won on actual battlefields. With practice accumulated over decades, the doctor was able to work so much faster, encasing not only the more elderly noblemen, but all their wives and daughters and courtesans as well. The doctor had told Anton that the women were easier as their bodies were more pliant, more accustomed to the rigors of fashion, more submissive to the attentions of men. He wasn't sure about that. They all terrified him, the old ones, with the bodices like the prows of bejeweled warships, the comparatively younger with their sharp glances aimed over fluttering fans as though they were infantry rifles. He would have believed that the women were more ready than the men to pick up their grandfather's sabers and run through any foes worthy of such an encounter. Such attentions are a delight, Herr Doctor. The grand duchess of some inconsequential principality simpered through her fan. If only my late husband's touch had been so skilled. You flatter me, madam. Wielding a brace of screwdrivers, the doctor completed adjusting across the steel bands spanning the woman's capacious bosom. I am no more than a simple craftsman. Anton finished encasing those to whom he had been assigned. The gaudy colors of their parade uniforms seeped through the hinged ligatures and mechanisms as might the plumage of exotic birds in tightly bound aviaries. They preened before each other, the skeletal limbs of their full-length cages creaking in place as he knelt at the side of the ballroom, wiping the tools with an oily rag before putting them away. A fluttering murmur arose from the noblewomen. Without glancing over his shoulder, Anton knew that the last of their number had arrived. Every New Year's Eve, the Dowager's arrival at the ballroom was the culminating event of the preparations, the signal that the festivities were soon to commence. Carefully timed, as though the old woman had some preternatural sense of when all the others had been bolted and strapped into place, ready to admire and obsequiously comment as she assumed her rightful position among them. The doctor set to work with no need of greeting or command. One of the senior maids in the dowager's retinue took the wrap from her shoulders, the sable fur powdered with snow not yet melted in the ballroom's heat. Another waited upon the dowager, who had not accompanied her the year before. When Anton closed his tool kit and stood up, keeping close to the paneled wall, he spotted Giesel. That was when his heart sped and his breath caught in his throat. Not at seeing her face, when it e- that had ever made him other but happy, but at discerning the fear inscribed upon it. She stood behind all the others, her own gaze downcast, arms close against her ribs, red chafed hands locked upon some bundle glistening white. The pulse at her throat ticked even faster than his, impelled by whatever terror it was that she felt. There. Herr Dr. Pavel stood back from the dowager, his intricate labors done. The evening is yours, madam. Enjoy it as you wish. Not yet, said the woman, now surrounded by the same metal struts and linkages as the other guests. There are still the best adornments to be put on. She turned and looked past the knot of chambermaids to the one farthest behind them. My pearls. Geisel scurried up to the dowager, her hands opening to cup the circled strands. Don't dawdle, child. The ball is to commence at any moment. The reason for Giesel's fear was quickly evident to Anton, as he watched her struggle to fasten the pearls around the dowager's neck. The articulated metal bands came up high enough on the woman, as with all the other noble guests, to make the task more than merely difficult, close to impossible, in fact. His own hands tensed into useless fists as he watched the girl attempting to draw the pearls through the narrow space between the dowager's wrinkled throat and the inside of the assemblage about to to her. What is the matter with you? The dowager fidgeted in discomfort, a soured grimace evidencing her dislike of another human being so close. Is such a simple task beyond you? The woman's sniping words didn't help. Giesel became even more flustered, her face draining white and her hands shaking with anxiety. Beneath her fingertips, one of the gleaming strands caught in the angle of a metal hinge. She tugged at the graduated length, attempting to free it. The silken thread inside snapped. The tiny precious spheres spheres flew in all directions, bouncing and clattering on the ballroom floor. Cretin! The dowager's face was a wrinkled mask of fury as her bony hand slapped Giesel. Idiot! Look what you've done! I'm sorry. Giesel was already down on her hands and knees trying to gather up all the scattered pearls. It was futile. Some of them had rolled and vanished into the grooved apertures through which the various machinery from the cellars below protruded, scalding vapors hissing along the jointed armatures. I didn't mean the smallest of them is worth more than you. The point of the dowager's heeled boot caught Giesel in the ribs, hard enough to evoke a gasp from her. Twenty of such as you! Anton wouldn't have thought there was so much strength in the old woman. As he watched another kick brought a spatter of blood from Giesel's mouth. If it hadn't been for the cage-like mechanism bolted into place around the dowager, her anger might have been enough to take off the offending girl's head. Don't, Herr Dr. Pavel laid a restraining hand across Anton's chest as he had stepped forward from the wall. I'll take care of it. Tears had diluted pink the blood that Giesel smeared with her palm as she huddled into a ball, knees against her breast. She barely looked up as the doctor interposed himself between her and the dowager. It was but an accident, the doctor soothed. No harm was intended. The dowager's rage continued without respite. She was even smiling, a slash across her starkly rouged face as her gloved and jeweled hand struck the doctor. Her eyes glittered in triumph as he fell at her feet. A blow such as that wouldn't have been enough to kill the doctor. Anton knew that. Perhaps it was the shame to be treated as a mere servant in front of all this nobility. It didn't matter. He pressed his own spine tighter to the paneled wall, gazing with dire presentiment at the unmoving figure crumpled on the ballroom floor. The manager of the Dowager's estates came down to the cellar to talk with Anton. He sat on a little wooden crate that at one time had held canisters of grease for the machinery clanking and wheezing all about them. Up above, he could hear the dancing. The unmanned violins scraped their bows across the strings, the sprightly rhythms impelling the aristocratic figures through their motions, or seeming to. You're aware, aren't you, that this person's dead? Anton looked over to where the manager, in his black livery, tilted the doctor's chin with an ink-stained finger. The old man's face was gray and slack, his eyes already filming over. Yes, he nodded. I knew that, even before they brought him down here. The distant distant instruments scurled and stuttered through the Hungarian galop, its rapid notes audible through the mechanical clamor closer at hand. From below, he could hear the roaring of the furnaces, driving every step of cavalry boot and sweep of lace-fringed gown. So I can hardly pay you, can I? The manager pulled his hand back, letting the doctor's head nod back onto the motionless chest. Our contract is with him, or rather it was, his unfortunate demise would seem to nullify the relationship. Did he have airs? A shake of the head as Anton bit his lower lip. He was not surprised at what the manager, with the accounts book in a pocket of the swallow-tailed coat, told him now. He had expected as much in his own sinking heart, but to hear it pronounced with gallows finality that he would not receive his year's wages, which air Dr. Pavel had always settled upon him as the midnight bells had struck, that he would go homeless and hungry, peering through shuttered shop windows for even the illusory hope of some new employment. He felt his hollow stomach clench at the thought of the empty, wintry streets that lay outside the Apollo Sol. If he had such, you might apply to them, the manager drew on his gloves, for what's owed to you. Antod said nothing. He knew no one owed him anything now. That was the way of the world. He watched the estate's manager mount the creaking iron ring, spiraling back up to the light and music above. Alone once more with his former master's corpse, he leaned forward where he sat, arms across his knees, hands working themselves into a brooding knot. His own hunger he scarcely minded. He was used to that. But Giesel had surely lost her place in the dowager's service. If he were able to pay for even a few more weeks of the attic room shelter, he might have taken her there. "'and wrapped his arms about her "'as they lay on the brown-spotted snow "'heaped in one narrow corner. "'He might have kept her safe there "'as they both waited for the cold year to return. "'The snows to melt under springs "'desperately longed for advance. "'They had both whispered plans to each other "'that he might break from the doctor's drudging employ, "'that they both might flee from the city "'and live on wild apples "'and snared woodcocks turned on rudely-fashioned spits. "'The two of them crouched around a small fires blackened stones.' even if it had been just for one spring and summer before the first chill winds inched through the hills, they would at least have that much, which would have been enough, or at least enough to tell each other so. But now they wouldn't. He turned his head, looking over the doctor's slump form. They never would. Heavy with resolve, Anton stood upright, pushing the wooden box aside with the heel of his foot. For a moment, he looked around himself at the churning machinery, the levers and pistons pumping away at the linkages to the ballroom above. If he tilted his head back, he could see small, bright glimpses of the light from the glittering chandeliers, interrupted by the quick, relentless motion of the dancers, swirling in their courses from one end of the grand space to the other. He watched and listened, then turned toward the valves and gauges spanning the basement walls. His hand reached out and grasped one of the small iron wheels, hesitated a moment, then twisted it as far as he could, until it could open no farther. Each of the valves hissed at him as he did the same to them. When he was done with the last, he stepped back, listening to the machinery shake faster and faster. Clouds of scalding vapor filled the chamber as he turned and made his way to the stone steps leading farther below. The stokers turned their silent gaze toward him. The flames beyond the iron doors glinted on the sweat and soot of their naked chests. "'More,' said Anton." He brought his own gaze from each man to the next, one after another. Higher. He raised his hand and pointed to the furnaces behind them. All you can give. They looked about at each other, then back to him. First, the closest ones slowly nodded, then they all did. A time had come that the stokers in their chains had thought would never come to them. They turned away, thrusting the blades of their shovels into the heaps of coal, hurling one load after another into the mounting flames. Even before Anton retreated back onto the steps, he felt the dizzying heat wash over him as though it were the tide of a fiery ocean. He brought a forearm across his eyes to shield himself from the vision of suns bursting to life inside the furnaces. He found Giesel at the back of the crowds outside the Apollo Sol. The townspeople pressed their faces close to the high arched windows, gaping through the blood-spattered glass at the whirling scene within. "'Don't you want to see them?' Giesel pulled her rough woolen shawl tighter about herself. This far away from the column building, the snowflakes remained unmelted, clinging to her golden hair. "'You told me you never liked them.' "'I don't need to see them,' said Anton. "'That was true. "'When he had come up from the basement, "'he had walked through the grand ballroom. "'He had stayed close to the wall "'to avoid the caged figures of the nobility "'whirling about in the interminable courses "'through the glittering space.' Impelled by the unleashed machinery protruding from the floor's gaps, the corseted men and women moved with such velocity that the slightest impact might have sent him sprawling unconscious. At the sudden no- noise of the windows shattering, he wrapped Giesel in his arms, turning his back toward the Apollo Sol and shielding her from the shards of glass. There were at least a few people in the crowd whose faces were nicked by the bright flying bits like a gale of razor edged ice crystals. They didn't even notice the trickles of red running down their throats as they pushed and scrabbled with the others, climbing inside the ballroom to gaze at the dead marvels there. Dead or dying, he had seen at least a few as he had made his way along the side of the ballroom who might still have been at least partly alive, the last of their strength and breath ebbing away. Slumped in the cages of the whirling machinery, metals dangling from hollow chests, jewels draped over cold breasts, their bodies kept erect only by the confines of the iron bands as they swept in one great circle of the others from one end of the ballroom to the other, then around again and again. The clattering of the machinery, along with the hissing and groans from the boilers beneath, was all that could be heard in the ballroom. That other music, all allegro and dash, had ceased when the violin strings had been sawn through by the ceaseless back-and-forth fury of the bows. Anton let go of the living form in his arms. He walked over to the dead one that had crashed through the ballroom window, flung by the mechanism that had disintegrated about the woman, its iron bands snapped at last by the force of the dance. The dowager's kid leather boots were sodden red now, the feet bloody to pulp inside them. After she could no longer dance, the machines had danced for her, and the others caught inside them. Now, twin pools of red seeped through the trampled snow that thawed with their thinning heat, then froze again. The empty eyes looked up at him with nothing but the night's heavy clouds reflected at their dulling centers, but only for a moment. He felt Giesel stepping close beside him, then saw one of her rag-wrapped clogs kick the dowager's face, hard enough to crack bone, and snap its lifeless gaze to one side. Don't. He wrapped his arms around her again, pulling her away as she burst into sobbing tears. It's all right. It is. It is. Even more terrible things were happening inside the grand ballroom. As he led Giesel away, he could hear vengeful shouts and laughter. The creak of metal wedged asunder, bludgeons of stick and fist hitting upon withered flesh. In the center of the city's widest street, Anton held Giesel close to himself. They both looked far beyond the skeletal trees at either side toward the ancient Roman walls. The half-naked stokers were lifting the beams onto their blackened shoulders, unbarring the gates tall as clock towers. Massive iron hinges groaned as the gates slowly parted, the stokers gripping and pulling the timber's edges toward themselves. He closed his eyes and pressed his face to the snow that had traced across Giesel's hair. Soldiers who wore no medals, with worn boots of rough, unpolished leather and hard-faced commissars with machine pistols rather than swords at their belts, astride horses, lean and bony ribbed from their long trek across the steps. They would enter unopposed now, gazing around at all that had fallen so easily into their hands. He held her even tighter, her heart in time with his. Things would be different now.